Amen. Thank you very much. And good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning again. And before we get into our message for the morning, I would just ask that we would bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the privilege of coming and worshiping you today. And I just pray now that as I speak, that you would give me the words that you would want to be spoken. And may each one of us hear your voice through the message that is given today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of us who are Americans, which I believe would be all of us, we've seen some very interesting things happen this past week. We saw a president reelected, and some may be unhappy, some may be happy. And what I wanted to talk about today is what should be our perspective as Seventh-day Adventists with respect to political questions, to political issues. So that's where we're going today, and um, we'll just follow along with some interesting points. But what I wanted to do, because we not only happen to be Seventh-day Adventists, we happen to be Americans, and in the Bible, we do have a clear picture in the Bible of what is going to happen here in the United States of America. And when we look at the United States of America from that perspective, it should give us some clarity of thinking as to what our role should be as Seventh-day Adventists today. And I want to start off with a quote from Great Controversy, page 592, which shows us where we are going. And this quote includes our scripture reading for today from Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And so let's look at this statement. Great Controversy, page 592. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplify the prophet's words. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here you see the quote from Revelation 12, 17, that a time is coming again when the dragon, Satan, is going to be enraged or wroth with the woman and will go to make war with that woman woman who is described as the remnant of God's seed, and specifically that remnant is described as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And based on the context of the statement that I just read, that final attack on God's commandment-keeping people has to do with civil legislation in this country that will require religious observance that goes contrary to the law of God. So when we look at things 
perhaps through a political lens, maybe we should step back and say, okay, what should we be most concerned about as Adventists, as Christians, as Americans? What is the role of this country and what is our role as God's people? Now, based on that statement, I wanna go now to scripture, to Revelation chapter 13. Because at the end of Revelation chapter 12, we see that the devil makes a final attack against God's people. And unless you're wondering, where did Ellen White come up with that idea about legislation for Sunday observance? The answer is found in Revelation chapter 13. And I'm going to show you from the Bible how we find this very thing happening. And here's what we see. When you look at the book of Revelation, you have two halves, and Revelation 12 is right in the middle. The first half describes Satan's attacks against God's people in the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. Revelation 12 shows you the great controversy, and right after you see the great controversy in Revelation 12, the very first thing you see after the great controversy is described in chapter 12, you see Satan's final attack against the remnant. And then in the following chapter, Revelation 14, you see the 144,000, the three angels' messages, and the great harvest, because Revelation 13 shows what Satan's plan is to destroy the remnant, but Revelation 14 shows us what God's plan is to preserve the remnant. Now, we're going to look briefly at what Satan tries to do to destroy the remnant here in Revelation chapter 13. And this should be a familiar chapter, but it's good to go over these things every so often. Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, briefly, if you study Daniel chapter 7, you find that a beast describes a kingdom. So you have a kingdom coming up out of the sea, and Revelation 17, 15 shows us that the sea represents a populated area in the world. So you have a beast coming up out of a populated area of the world, and we see, or a kingdom coming out of a populated area of the world, and we see in verse 2 a, a greater description of who this kingdom is. Verse 2, and the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Now, those of you who have studied prophecy, what does this remind you of? You have a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Where do you see that else in scripture? Daniel chapter 7, where you have in the order a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a dreadful, terrible beast. So this beast in Revelation 13 is a composite of the beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And it's interesting Notice this beast has the mouth of a lion. Now, historically, who do we understand the lion represented in Daniel chapter 7? That's the kingdom of Babylon. So when you look at this beast in Revelation chapter 13, he has characteristics of all of the beasts, but specifically this beast has the mouth of a lion, which is the kingdom of Babylon. And when someone speaks, where is the, the speech coming from? Well, I'll tell you, it's from the inferior left frontal lobe known as Broca's area. Um, anyway, sorry. That's coming from the mind. So this beast has the mind of Babylon. Okay? So what we can say is that this beast is described as Babylon. He has the mouth of a lion. And notice this in the end of verse 2. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat 
and great authority. So here you have a beast, a kingdom. And who's the dragon, by the way? Satan, and you see that in Revelation 12, just from the Bible. Here you have a kingdom who has been given power by Satan to rule here on this earth. And this kingdom is a composite of the beast that we saw in Daniel 7, the lion, the bear, the leopard. But he speaks like Babylon because he has the mouth of a lion. Now, in verse 3, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. I'm going to skip over that at this point. <clears throat> I want to go on to verse 5 where it says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things, and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. So here you have this power, this kingdom, who rules for 42 months, and specifically, he has a mouth, which by the way, this is the mouth of the lion, who speaks great blasphemies. Now, it's interesting, when you go back to Daniel chapter 7, do you hear anything in Daniel chapter 7 of great words being spoken? Do you remember if you study Daniel chapter 7? Well, let's just turn there briefly. Daniel chapter 7. If you look, starting in verse 4, you have the first beast of the lion. In verse 5, the, the beast of the bear. Verse 6, the beast of the leopard. Verse 7, the dreadful, terrible beast with iron teeth. And then in verse 8, you have a little horn that comes up. And specifically, this little horn has a mouth speaking great things. You see the comparison to Revelation 13, where you have a lion that has a mouth that speaks great things? And then, in verse 11 of Daniel chapter 7, again, Daniel sees, I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the little horn spake. And again, you see, um, further on down, in verse 25, speaking of this little horn, he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. So notice these great words that this little horn power is speaking. And by the way, when you follow the scope of history, the lion is Babylon, the bear is Medo-Persia, the leopard is Greece, the dreadful, terrible beast is pagan room and the little horn is papal room and papal room speaks great words against the god of heaven and he tries to change times and laws and he persecutes the saints for a time times and the dividing of time which is the same as the 42 months in revelation 13 which was 1260 years <clears throat> now when you then look at revelation 13 you can see that this beast, this composite beast, is the same thing as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. But it's interesting, the first beast of Revelation chapter 13 is not the only beast described in Revelation 13. Is that right? There's another beast that comes after this first beast, and we see that starting in verse 11. Notice what verse 11 says. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. Now right there you see the difference between the first beast and the second beast. The first beast comes out of the sea, the second beast comes out of the earth. And notice this, he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. 
Now, in order for us to understand who the second beast is, we understand from the scope of history that you have the Lion of Babylon, that's 605 to 539, the Bear of Medo-Persia is 539 to 331, the Leopard of Greece is 331 to 168, Pagan Rome is 168 BC to 476 AD, and Papal Rome is 538 to 1798 when it received the deadly wound. Therefore, the second beast must come up from the earth around the time that the first beast receives the deadly wound. And was there a political kingdom that came into existence at the very time that Papal Rome was losing its preeminence in Europe? And we know absolutely from history, in an unpopulated area of this world, the great nation of the United States of America rose up into existence. And it had two horns like a lamb, which we have historically believed represent the civil and religious liberty that the United States has offered to us as citizens of this great nation, which is why we can worship here today with freedom of conscience to worship God as we choose. And as of today, that is still the case. Can you say amen to that? We still have the freedom to come and worship God today as we choose. But notice, it's not always going to be that way. It has two horns like a lamb, but it says he spake as a dragon. Now, how does a kingdom speak? A kingdom speaks through the enactment of laws, right? That's how a nation speaks. And when this beast speaks like a dragon, can you have some understanding of what it's going to be like? He speaks like a dragon. Well, how does the dragon speak? Does the Bible tell us how the dragon speaks? Actually, if you just go back and look at Revelation 13, you see how the dragon speaks. In verse 2, the dragon gives his power, seat, and authority to the first beast who has the mouth of a lion. And how does the lion speak? He has a mouth speaking blasphemies. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see that he speaks great words against the Most High, and he tries to change times and laws. Now, do you see the connection here? Let me, let me try to make this as clear as I can. The first beast gets his power and authority from the dragon, who is Satan, and when he speaks, he speaks blasphemy, and specifically, he tries to change times and laws, or the law of God, because he's speaking against the Most High, the God of heaven. The second beast, when he speaks, he will also speak like a dragon, meaning he's going to speak the same way the first beast spoke. We're not just making this up out of thin air here. This is sound biblical reasoning. He is speaking like the first beast who for 1,260 years, the 42 months, spoke blasphemies and tried to change the law of God. And guess what? The second beast is going to try to do the very same thing. So the question is, can we say, living in America today, that the second beast is speaking like the dragon? Based on what the Bible says, only when America enacts laws that require religious worship prescribed by the civil government, only then will America speak like the dragon. So while it may be true that we may be frustrated with some things that are going on in America today, we cannot yet say that America is speaking like the dragon. 
because when the dragon speaks, he tries to change the law of God. And we see how he tried to change the law of God during the 1,260 years that the first beast was in power. So that should give us maybe some clarity of thinking when we look at the political scene today and say, oh no, so-and-so just got elected. That means we have three months until the Sunday law comes. Well, let me read you a few statements. And by the way, I'm not trying to take sides here today. Please don't think that I'm voicing support for any one party. And after I read a few statements here, I hope you'll see why. Let me read you a few statements about what kind of role we should have as Adventists with respect to politics. And these are a few helpful statements from the pen of Ellen White. The first one is from Second Selected Messages, page 336. Whatever the opinions you may entertain in regard to casting your vote in political questions, you are not to proclaim it by pen or voice. Our people need to be silent upon questions which have no relation to the third angel's message. If ever a people needed to draw nigh to God, it is Seventh-day Adventists. My brethren, will you not remember that none of you have any burden laid upon you by the Lord to publish your political preferences in our papers or to speak of them in the congregation when the people assemble to hear the word of the Lord? We are not as a people to become mixed up with political questions. That's pretty clear. Let's read another one. Testimonies to Ministers, page 331 and 332. Would we know how we may best please the Savior? It is not in engaging in political speeches, either in or out of the pulpit. It is in considering with fear and trembling every word we utter. Where the people assemble to worship God, let not a word be spoken that shall divert the mind from the great central interest, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The third angel's message is to be our burden of warning. The side issues are not for us to meddle with. The burden of the work is preach the word. And then this is General Conference Daily Bulletin, February 17, 1897. The Lord Jesus is disappointed in his people. He is the captain. They are to file under his banner. They have no time, wisdom, or strength to spend in taking sides with political parties. Men are being stirred with an intense activity from beneath, and the sons and daughters of God are not to give their influence to this political strife. But what kind of a spirit takes hold upon our people when those who believe we are now under the third angel's message, the last message of mercy to the world, brothers in the same faith, appear wearing the badges of opposing political parties, proclaiming opposite sentiments, and declaring their divided opinions. And you know, we should never have division in our church over politics. That just shouldn't happen. There is danger, decided danger, for all who shall link themselves up with the political parties of the world. There is fraud on both sides. I mean, don't think that your favorite political leader of your favorite political party is going to be the savior to this country. It ain't going to happen. There is fraud on both sides. God has not laid upon any of our people the burden, the burden of linking up with either party. And I think that's, that's enough to read on, on those quotes. Actually, I should read this quote about Jesus and Desire of Ages, page 509. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. 
Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national, entemies, the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of man, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. So again, if you're looking for your political party to solve the problems of this world, it's not going to happen. And you know what? We have the answer to those problems. And it's not in our favorite political party. And then actually I should read this last one. This is Gospel Workers 391. The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. Christ calls upon his followers to come into unity on the pure gospel principles which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties, for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot with safety take part in any political scheme. We cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty. Now, she's not saying that you shouldn't vote at all. What she's saying is don't just show up to the, the um the ballot box and vote the party line without even knowing who you're voting for. You should know what the person stands for before you cast your vote for them. Now, what is, what's the point in me bringing this up? Well, here's what I've noticed. And, you know, I obviously watched the news and I saw what happened. And you hear a description of how the vote came out and all of these things, and you would hear descriptions of campaign volunteers spending hours upon hours of their time, day after day, knocking on doors saying, please vote for my candidate. He's the one that's the best one to vote for. Now, there's, they have the freedom and the right to do that, and it's impressive how hard some of those campaign volunteers work, but it made me think, man, where are God's people with the same motivation and the same zeal to get our message out there. I mean, if people who have no heavenly interest, so to speak, are out there working that hard to get their favorite political party into power for four more years, where are we trying to get people into the eternal heavenly kingdom where we won't have to have another election? And that, may, that just got me thinking, that should be a lesson to us. That if they can put that much energy and time and dedication into a political cause where Revelation 11 makes it very clear that the kingdoms of this world are going to pass away and God will set his kingdom up which will never be destroyed, what are we doing laboring to build up temporal kingdoms here on this earth? You know, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world in John 18:36. He said, if it was, my servants would fight. And for those of us who may be very disappointed in the outcome of the election, just remember, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, it is God who sets kings up and takes them down. The will of God may not always co coincide with our political preferences, but we have to, by faith, accept that God is still in control. And at the end of the day, when we think about what we should be doing as God's people at this time in Earth's history, we have to remember that our country is headed 
to a place where a time is going to come where we as a nation will speak again like a dragon, the way the first beast of Revelation 13 is described, and we will enact laws as we speak like a dragon that will require those people in our country to worship God in a way that is prescribed by a political ruler rather than by what God's word says. And because of that, we as God's people have a work to do to warn the world of what is coming to this world. And our work is not to try to go out and get our party elected four years from now. Our work is to prepare a people to stand in the day of God. So Revelation 13 shows how Satan will try to destroy the remnant. He will try to destroy God's people, and it shows that he nearly seems to have accomplished it because it says all the world wonders after the beast, yet we come to Revelation 14, and we see this glorious picture on Mount Zion with the Lamb, 144th standing, which shows that Satan doesn't get everyone. And the reason why he doesn't get everyone is because right after verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14, we see how that 144,000 was prepared. It's through the proclamation of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12. That's our mission as God's last day people. We are to proclaim that we are living in the judgment hour of earth's history, that we have the everlasting gospel that has never changed from the very time that there was sin, there was a savior. The gospel has not changed. It's the everlasting gospel that saves us from our sins, that Jesus died for us and he can transform our lives. And that yes, there is a Babylon out there today and that we are to call people to come out of her. And yes, there is a third angel's message that describes a time when there will be a group of people where God can look and say, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so what I would say to you today is, look, at the end of the day, whatever happens in Washington, our focus should be on what God has given us as a commission to prepare people to get up to the heavenly kingdom. Washington isn't really going to be the the place to be when it all comes crashing down. The place to be is on God's side so that when Jesus comes, we we will be found ready to meet him. And not only that, we will have done our part to share this message with others, not just by sitting back and listening, but by going out and sharing and encouraging and and strengthening those with whom we come in contact with every day. So by the grace of God, let's go out and be faithful witnesses to God's work for our time. Amen? Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises you give us in your word. That although it may seem like the world may come crashing down around us, if we are on your side, we don't have anything to be worried about. And I thank you that you have given us a clear warning in your scripture of what is coming, but also for the promises that you will be victorious. So help us to trust in you and to be faithful to you and to follow you each and every step of the way. And may we do the work that you have given us to do. And may we not be caught up with side questions and side issues that will not prepare us to be ready for the Lord to come. But may we give our heart and our lives to the work you've given us to do. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.